Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're not going to stay there long, but if you'll turn there, there's going to spring off of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, then we'll be turning to Philippians chapter 2 in a moment. We've been talking about, for Sundays now, the denying self for the sake of others. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul was the example of his own preaching. If any man ever lived what he preached, Paul lived what he preached. In chapter 8, he had told those who understood their freedom under grace. They knew their position in Christ. He told them they should be willing not to let that freedom and that understanding cause their weaker brother to stumble. Be sensitive to your weaker brother, is what Paul is saying. Their weaker brother's Knowledge was not what theirs was. And so he said to the stronger, he said, listen, your knowledge should be mixed with love because if it's not, not, you'll not be sensitive to those that are around you. Knowledge alone breaks, but knowledge with love builds, especially the weaker brother. He sums up the whole of chapter eight in verse nine. He says, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Then in chapter 9, he expands this by giving his own personal example. He said, Now I've asked you, you that understand, to give up your right to eat meat, sacrificed idols. You know that won't bother you. But I'm asking you to deny yourself that privilege for the sake of your weaker brother that doesn't understand this truth. And he says, Now let me give you my own personal example. After the last verse of chapter 8, he says, If, if meat would cause my brother to stumble, I would never eat meat again. In other words, that's his heartbeat. Then in chapter 9, he starts off by proving his apostleship. He says, you know, you're a member of the body of Christ, but I want you to understand something. So am I, but I'm an apostle. And an apostle has privileges you don't have. And so he proves his apostleship. Then he gives the privileges of his apostleship. And to sum all of them up, it is that he could demand the right to be supported by the churches. He could do that. That was the right of an apostle. The members of the church did not have that right, but the apostles had that right. And then he talks about his passion as an apostle as he begins to show you how he lives out what he preaches. And he says, I have chosen not to demand that right. I've chosen to be a tent maker for the sake of Christ. I'm not going to pull money out of you. I'm not going to do that, even though the other apostles has every right to do it, and they do. I've chosen not to do that. Then last week, as we looked further into chapter 9, we got an intimate look at the Apostle Paul. 
we saw first of all the sincerity of the Apostle Paul in verse 15 of chapter nine. He says, but I have used none of these things. I have not taken any of my privileges as an apostle and demanded them of you. He says, and I am not writing these things that it may be done so in my case. He said, in other words, I'm not sharing this with you so that you'll feel sorry for me and start supporting me. He goes on and says, for it would be better for me to die than any man, have any man make my boast an empty one. He said, Paul is basically saying, if I was ever, ever seen to be a, a man that does what he does for money, it would literally kill me because that's not my heart. We saw the humility of Paul. He preached only because God had raised him up and gifted him. It had nothing to do with it. He didn't go to school to learn how to do it. God called him to do it. He says in verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. What could I boast of, he says? For I'm under compulsion. For woe is to me if I do not preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul says it'd be the worst grief I could ever know if I didn't preach because I didn't choose this. God chose it for me. I can't boast in it. I can only boast in him who gave me that wonderful opportunity. And then we saw the expectancy of the Apostle Paul. His reward was not in what he did, but the way that he did it. He says in verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Now that verse sometimes can throw you. What he says is, I can expect a reward if I came up with it, if I went to school to train myself to do it, now I'm doing it, I can expect to be paid for it. But he says, hey, this is something God did in my life. I can't expect a reward for that. He says, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. That's the way it was. He was on his way to Damascus to kill Christians and God stopped him and arrested him. And God was the one who called him as an apostle. He says, I have a stewardship entrusted to me and I'm gonna stand before God one day and answer for it. Why would I seek a reward for something I don't even deserve? But then he says in verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul says, I do have a reward. Again, not in what I do, but the way I do it. I've chosen, I've made a conscious choice. I've chosen to deny myself the privileges of dragging support out of the churches. He says, I'm, I'm gonna raise my own money. And when, when I preach the gospel in these pagan areas, when I take the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who've never heard it, I'm not gonna charge them a dime. And he says, I'm getting the reward now and I'll get the reward one day. Not for what I do, but for the way that I do it. You're beginning to see a man that's been molded by the grace of God. A man that has, Christ not only gave him life, Christ became his life. And this is the testimony of the apostle Paul. You see, the bottom line is, without the grace of God, without Christ living in Paul, Paul would have never been this way. And this is important to understand, folks. Denying yourself for the sake of others is not an act of the natural human flesh. It's an unnatural act to that, but it's a natural act to the Lord Jesus' life that lives within you. When the Holy Spirit of God is in control of your life, he motivates you to be sensitive to others and he will enable you and he will motivate you to deny yourself for the sake of others. It is Christ, and Paul would never say it is me. He would always point to Christ. It is Christ that causes us to do these things. Christ is the greatest example that ever lived on this earth of denying himself for the sake of others. He was and he is the God man who came to take away our sin. 
I wonder if you'd quote with me this morning a verse all of us know. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think this morning if we're going to talk about denying self for the sake of others, we've got to go to the one who's the greatest example of this who is the Lord Jesus himself. We need to see his heart of compassion because if we don't understand that, then we can't understand his command to us to do the same thing. You see, what he commands us to do, he lives in us to enable us to do. If you're a believer this morning, God in you motivates you and God in you enables you to deny yourself for the sake of others. I want you to turn to the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians. And we're gonna take just a little side venture today, still in 1 Corinthians, still in 1 Corinthians 9. But we're gonna see now the person that lived in Paul in the person of his Holy Spirit that enabled Paul to live what he preached and also would enable those believers in Corinth to do what Paul had asked them to do. Philippians, the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter one, verse 21, seems to me to be the verse that the whole book wraps itself around. It sums up to me the whole purpose of it. He says in verse 21, and this is such a truth, he says, for to me, and I like the way he says that, not to you and not to somebody else, I can only speak for myself. He says, but to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that's a man who's understood something that every believer here in this building this morning needs to understand that Christ is our life. Not just he came to give us life, he is our life. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. The word zoe, the essence of my life is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to die is gain. Why would it be gain? Because I trust him by faith today. I can't see him, but I trust him. And I trust his word. I stand on some things I can't even understand, but I believe it by faith. But one day when I die, I'll see him face to face and that'll be gain to me. I'll be walking by sight and not just by faith. Chapter, verse six of chapter one shows us that Christ is not just the motivating factor of Paul's life. He's the very essence of it. It says in verse six, as he speaks of them, he says, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he began it, you didn't begin it, just like it happened in Paul, it happened in them. No one seeks after God. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not seeking after God, but God is seeking after you. Ask yourself, why are you in this building this morning? God's seeking after us. We don't find Jesus, he finds us. Praise God that he does because our flesh does not seek after him. He says, I'm confident this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, bring it to its completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is Christ in us. It is his work through us. And when you see a man denying himself for the sake of others, never praise that man. You praise God that lives in that man. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It was Christ living and loving through Paul that caused Paul to live what he preached. It wasn't Paul, it was God in Paul. The same God who lived in the Corinthian believers. That's why Paul kept saying, don't attach yourself to me, attach yourself to him. I can't do anything for you. 
He can do everything through you if you'll just attach yourself to Him. Now, you have to understand the circumstance of Paul writing the book of Philippians if you want to realize what God can do in your life this morning. Paul was writing in prison. He had been put in prison as a result of a false accusation made over in Jerusalem by some very jealous Jewish people. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And then in verse 13 he says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. In verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. There's no doubt that Paul is in prison when he writes this. Do you realize that prisons don't have to have bars and doors and windows? A prison, in his case, was a circumstance that was brought about because of his love for Jesus, because of his willingness to decrease and let Christ increase in him, this imprisonment came. You might be here this morning and your husband doesn't love Jesus, ma'am, or your wife doesn't love Jesus, sir, or your parents don't love Jesus, young people, or whatever, and you're in a circumstance you can't change. But listen to me. God who lives in you will change you in the midst of your circumstance. And as a result of that, get the message to others. This is Paul. He's in prison. And all he can talk about is Jesus Christ. The theme of the book of Philippians is not joy or rejoice, as everybody says, only used 19 times. It's Jesus Christ used 31 times in the book. Here's a man who's in prison who is overwhelmed with his Christ. This is what God does in a person. He enables him to be what he could never be apart from the grace that God has given to him. This is where Paul wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon for the greatest epistles in the whole New Testament was written out of this imprisonment because of his willingness to deny himself, because of his willingness to think of Christ, because of his willingness to let Jesus be Jesus in him. We have four of the greatest epistles that have ever been written. He knew he was never a victim. That's something this morning that we need to understand. As Christians, we are not victims. That's why we celebrate the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He's conquered death, he's conquered sin, and he's conquered the grave. And as we learn to choose to obey him, he lives conquering us. We're never victims, we're always victors in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he took his imprisonment, turned it around, and used it as a means of telling others about the good news of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> I love that. He said, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of the Jews. He was a political hostage at that time. The, the Jews wanted him dead. The Romans didn't know what to do with him. But he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he wrote to the church at Philippi? Look at verse 12 of chapter 1, what he wrote to the church at Philippi. This is incredible. Here's the man telling the church of Corinth, deny yourself. You stronger people, deny your own freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. Here's the man modeling it right here. He says in verse 12 of chapter 1 in Philippians, Now I want you to know, brethren, he says, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. I love that. I, from time to time over the years I've been pastor here, we've talked about this passage, and I have my own personal view of that. He says it's turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You know, we take these courses, EE and CWT, or whatever that is, and TNT. We got all our courses in evangelism. Paul said, I got a better one. It's called PE, prison evangelism. 
Let God back you in a corner. Let God shut you off. Let God put bars to where you can't do a thing to change your circumstance. And I'll show you how the gospel gets out. Paul thought he would go to Rome, put up a tent, preach a meeting. God says, no, sir, you're gonna go in chains, you're gonna go in shackles, but you're not just gonna reach the people, you're gonna reach Caesar and his whole household. So he told the church of Philippi, who was probably having a prayer meeting, praying for the poor old Apostle Paul. Bless his heart, he's in jail. And if he's in jail, he can't witness, oh God, set him free. Paul writes and said, I want you to know something. The word know there means you'd never know it if I hadn't written it to you. Will you quit praying like that? My imprisonment has been for the greater cause of the gospel. It's working for me. It's not working against me. I'm not a victim. I'm a victor in Christ Jesus. He said in verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Everybody knows I'm here. Everybody knows I'm here and they know why I'm here. Praetorian Guard not only speaks of those Roman elite soldiers, but it also speaks of the headquarters. I mean the whole headquarters of Caesar's elite. Can you imagine? I, I've shared this from time to time over the years, my perspective on this. I want to share it with you again. How that great big old Roman soldier, man, you're talking about the studs of Rome, son. I mean these guys were big dudes and they were, they were absolutely the best. And can't you imagine having three shifts, seven to three, three to 11, 11 to seven. Seven o'clock shift in the morning, guy's coming on, man, he's fresh, he's ready to go. He checks the lists. Who am I gonna be chained to today? Because the word imprisonment also translated chains. We don't know if he's chained or not. We know he had a lot of freedom. We know that he could write his letters and entertain visitors. However, he was a political hostage. I have to believe he was chained because they didn't want him to get out of their sight. And here's the old big boy coming in. He looks down the list and he says, Paul, Oh no, you mean that wimpy little guy? Bow-legged, hook-nosed, bald-headed little Jewish guy. You mean I've gotta be chained to him? Oh no, eight hours with this guy? He's a, he's a wimp. Walking down the hall, he passes the guy coming off the 11 to seven ship. And when he stops, the guy looks at him, he looks awful. Big circles under his eyes, hair stuck straight out. I mean, this guy looks like he has plugged his finger into a 220 outlet. And he says to him, said, son, he said, what's wrong with you? He said, before I answer you, who's your assignment today? Who are you gonna be attached to today? And he said, oh, I've got that wimpy little old sissy guy by the name of Paul. He said, don't do it, don't do it. You don't wanna be chained to that man for eight hours. I'm telling you, don't do it. I'm your friend, go back, change it. You don't wanna do that. Oh, come on, man, look at this. I can handle that little guy. He goes in the cell. Paul's sitting there dejected looking. Bless his heart. Church of Philippi feeling so sorry for him. <laughs> he gets over to him, puts the shackles on his, his ankle clicks him on Paul's ankle. Paul's waiting on the second. Second one he puts on his wrist and then he shackles it to Paul's wrist, that's it. When the thing goes click, Paul says, well, glory, hallelujah. We got a one seat auditorium, got a full house today. Now, take out a sheet of paper. He said, what do you mean take out a sheet of paper? Here's a pencil. We're gonna talk about the, the doctrine of soteriology. Let's begin with the efficacy of the blood. Number one, Jesus is God's son. And for eight solid hours, at the end of the day, the guy gets off, he's walking down the hall, looks like he's just been through it. Here comes his buddy, fresh, coming down the hall. What's Matthew, man? Hold it. Who have you got these next eight hours? I got this little wimpy guy named, go change it, go change it. Don't, do, don't go in there with that man. Did it work? Chapter four, verse 22 is a precious verse. <clears throat> he says in, in chapter four, verse 22, all of God's household greets you, especially of the household of Caesar. Did it work? 
God said, I want the elite of Rome to know about me. Therefore, Paul, you're not a victim, you're a victor. I'm gonna put you in jail. Is that all right with you? Fine with me, Lord. You willing to deny yourself for the sake of others? Have at it, Lord. And he gets into prison, only preaches Christ, and as a result, the gospel goes all the way to the headquarters of Rome. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What a savior that can cause a man just like you and me to live like that. Don't you ever praise Paul. You praise God that lived in Paul. That's what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. He doesn't just give you life. He is your life. He causes you to be what you could not be apart from his grace working in you. Well, it's in chapter two that we see the truth that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now we see it come clear. But you gotta have chapter one to build on. Christ must be your life and you must be willing to let him be your life to daily die to you and let him be who he wants to be in and through you. In Philippians chapter two and verse three, you see when Christ is your life, he changes your whole attitude towards the weaker brother, toward the sinful brother, towards whoever else is out there, the odd brother, a lot of them in the body of Christ. <laughs> you say, yeah, Wayne, we're looking at one, that's all right. It changes your whole perspective. You see people now from the eyes of God, you don't just see them from your own perspective. In verse three of Philippians two, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind that each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That's what Paul's saying in chapter eight of 1 Corinthians. Regard these other people as more important than yourself. These weaker brothers that don't understand. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests as most people do, but also for the interest of others. And then comes the context in verse five. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the attitude that Paul's requiring of them in chapter eight, exemplifying for them in chapter nine. And now he says, you have the same attitude that Christ had. You say, how can I have the attitude of Christ? I'm not God. It's exactly right. Two absolutes in life. One, there is a God. Two, you're not him. How can I then have the attitude of Christ? If Christ is your life of chapter one in Philippians, then Christ becomes your attitude in Philippians chapter two. He frames your eyes towards the people and you see them as he sees them. When I served down in Mississippi and the racial terrible things that were going on down there, 89% black in Holmes County, Mississippi, 11% white. And when I was there trying to, to minister to the blacks of that community and the whites, hatred for the black, there was a group of people that called themselves nuns. They said they were Franciscan nuns. I hate to tell them that's a monk order, not a nun order. Hot pants and halter tops is what the ladies wore. That's real exciting. No pun intended there. And they would go around stirring up racial strife in the city, boycotts on the stores. They called me one day and said, why don't you ever come to our meetings? We're trying to get racial freedom and equality here. I said, listen, I'm not coming to your meeting because you're going at it from the wrong direction. She said, what do you mean? I said, until people's hearts are changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll never be any different. Somebody send the message to Washington, will you? Tell them until people's hearts are changed, until God who so loved the world comes and lives in their life and changes the way they see people. We'll never see an answer to this thing. It's only by what God can do as your life that affects your attitude 
towards others. And the greatest example that ever showed us this was the Lord Jesus himself. He has got to come to live in you, to change the way you see and the way you live, to change the way that you are. Verse 6 down gives us our text for this morning. I want to show you the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, of denying self for the sake of others. Now remember the context. You have the same attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus. That's the context. Rarely have I ever heard this message preached in his context. Because after he tells you what Jesus did, he brings it back and reminds them, this is the way you're to live and I'm to live. First of all, the place that Christ left, the place that Christ left. I guess if you haven't already had this happen, I bet you have, you will have it happen to you. You're going to be accosted by a person who says they're a part of the Jehovah's Witnesses. How many of you have had an experience with that already? Raise your hand. Yes, sir. Now, do you know that they believe that Jesus was created as a man, that he was not God preexistent, that he became man, he was created, he was born as man. They use such phrases that make to prove their point. I just wish for them that they would just study Scripture and let Scripture speak for itself. But they use Scripture to try to prove that Jesus did not pre-exist, that Christ did not pre-exist. He was created. He was a created being. He had only started in his birth there in Bethlehem. I'll tell you what there, they're sincere, and their motive is strong, but it's wrong. I was up in Montana, beautiful country of Montana. I love the hills and the wilds and the open spaces and the mountains, the high, the high country, the, high, the big pine trees that you see up there that's different than anything we have around here. And we were way back in the mountains trout fishing. And uh, I'd already seen a moose come down. Of course, a moose coming near you in the woods is a scary thing. If they have, if it's a female and they have young with it, then you know to get out of its way. The fellow who was stomped to death at the University of Alaska could tell you about that. Don't blame the moose. They've been throwing snowballs at it all day long and the man walked in. It was so irritated and afraid that somebody was going to hurt her young that it stomped the man to death, seven years old, going into the gymnasium there in Anchorage. So it was a scary thing for one to even get around you. You had to make sure that that moose knew that you were not there to hurt it in any way. It had left. I had a fly rod and I was trying to work around a bush to get that fly up there. And all of a sudden a voice behind me said, hello, I like to jump out in the stream. There's nobody in these woods, and it was a female voice. Now, what's a female voice? I thought, that moose can't talk, can it? <laughs> I, t- I turned around, and that lady was standing there, and I'm thinking, did she bail out of a plane or something? I mean, how did you get in here? We're way up in the mountains. And she said, sir, I just came by to tell you that God loves you. And I said, well, praise God, I know that, and I thank you for rehearsing it for me. And she said, you know what? God also loves your family. And by some of the things she was saying, I'm thinking, hmm, she's saying what I want to hear because she's leading me to where I want to want to go. And I said, I know he loves my family. Matter of fact, that's what I'm doing up here. Would you like to know who I am? My name is Wayne Barber, and I'm pastor of the Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'm doing a meeting over here at First Baptist Church, Hamilton, Montana. I'd love for you to come. We've talking about the love of Jesus and how, how he demonstrated that on the cross. God's son sent to this earth to die for us. And I said, not only that, he loves our family. He lives in us to enable us to love our family. And she said, thank you, and I'll see you. <laughs> They're everywhere, man. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. How are you going to handle them when they, when they come to your doorstep? 
How are you going to handle them when they catch you on a bus someplace and you're sitting beside them? How are you going to handle them when you're on a plane and they tell you that Jesus was a created being? He didn't pre-exist beforehand. Well, listen. Verse 6. Who, speaking of Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, Paul points to a time when Christ was in heaven as the Son with God the Father, although he existed in the form of God. The word existed is in the present tense, continual existence, and the word is eparko, which means he existed, continued to exist. It means a being that continually existed in a place. Now, the whole context tells you this before he came to this earth. The word form is the word morphe, who although he existed in the form of God. Now, that word is not what you think. Some people think that means the form means the image, the shape, the fashion. No, 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 no. Not in the Greek. The word morphe, translated form, means the very essence of something. Not the shape, not the fashion. That's another word altogether. You see, no one could be in the form of God that was not God himself. That right there blows it out of the water. He had to have been God. The form is the very essence of something. There's another word that means shape. It comes up in verse 8. And when you see those two words together, you get a completed picture. In verse 8 it says, and being found in appearance as a man. Schema. Schema means the form, the shape, the fashion of the man. The essence of who he was is the morphe, the, 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 the essence of, man, of God. But then the shape that he came into, that he appeared as, is the word schema who although he existed in a place continuously, it says, in the form of God, the essence of God, he is God, he always has been God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that word did not regard, hegiome. It means to esteem something, to reach for something that's not yet reality perhaps, or, or, or to try to make something that's not. Christ did not esteem what? He says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The fact that he was equal to God the Father, and when the word God is used here in the context along with him, it means God the Father, always. You can check that in every context it's used. Christ was and is equal to the Father. Just like in John 5, 18, it says, for this cause therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. This is why they wanted to kill him. It's a funny thing that the Jehovah's Witnesses say he never claimed to be God. <laughs> oh, yes, he did. Just read it. So Christ, who is equal to God, did not esteem the fact. This fact is an act of seizure or robbery. I mean, he didn't have to go out and try to grasp this fact and prove it. He was God, and he is God. So he didn't have to esteem that fact to, to make it a reality, because it, it was already a reality. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing to be grasped is the word Carpegmos, and it means to seize with force. That's why the word robbery comes up, I think, in the King James. Not an act of seizure, not an act of robbery. He existed in heaven as the very essence of God. And he didn't have to prove this to anybody. That's who he was. He didn't reach out for that thought and say, oh, that's a great thought. No, that's who he was. And the fact was never something he considered as a seizure or a robbery. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, I love this, and this is one of the verses that some of these people who try to prove that Christ was birthed and created instead of pre-existent, 
use and they don't even understand the Greek here. He says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And guess what tense is used? The imperfect tense. No beginning and no end. He always has been, always will be and all and, uh, and continues to be God. He's the Word and He's God equal to the Father. So it points to a time of His pre-existent state when He was in heaven at the right hand of the Father, he preexisted before even the foundation of the world. First John goes on, I mean, John goes on to say that without him, there was nothing created. He created everything. So the preexistent and the place that Christ left. Now remember the context. The context is denying yourself for the sake of others. Look at the place that he left to come down to sinful and cursed earth. He left heaven. Secondly, the pattern Christ set. Verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Now Christ, now proven to be God, demonstrated his love by choosing to deny himself and become like man. He left his throne in glory. Think about it. He left his throne in glory for what, what reason? To heal a broken relationship with man and God. Look what he gave up to come here and for what purpose? For sinful man. To heal that broken relationship with man and the Father. Sin had separated man and God. If you're here today and you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are separated from God for all of eternity and there's not one single thing that can cure you except putting your faith into Jesus who came to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And when you put your faith in Him, Romans says that you're justified, which means that you've been acquitted and the, the guilt that fell on you now is gone and the punishment fell on him because the wrath has fallen on the lamb. You receive the lamb, you escape the wrath. But you're separated from God until that instance takes place in your life. For there to be a relationship between man and God, Jesus had to come and he had to die as a man on the cross. He had to fulfill the law because the law was what required of man and then condemn man because he couldn't live up to it. As a man, he did that for you and I. Christ came as a lamb to die for our sin. That's why John the Baptist one day when he saw him says, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Verse 7 begins with, But he emptied himself. Emptied himself. The word empty is kino. It means to divest oneself of something. Boy, all kinds of error has come right here. This statement refers to Jesus Christ as emptying himself of something at the time of his incarnation when he became man. This denotes the beginning of his self-humiliation. Now, to understand his emptying himself, you've almost got to put six through eight together because in six through eight, there are two states of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, his pre-existent state, that's verse six. We've already seen that. But the second state is his state of humiliation. When he humbled himself and came down to this earth and became a man, that, that initiates the state of his humiliation. So what does it mean he emptied himself? The rest of the verse tells you. He emptied himself of his divine glory and recognition by taking upon himself the body of flesh. But emptied himself, how? Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. In no way did he give up his attributes of God. Now this is something where a lot of error comes from. Oh, he emptied himself of his divinity. No, he can't, can't cease to be who he is. But he became flesh his humanity did not replace his deity. No, sir. His humanity only veiled his deity. As a matter of fact, go back to the Mount of Transfiguration and a little bit of that deity got revealed in it. 
when the glory shone through his robe and the essence of who he was began to show through. But his flesh only veiled his humanity. The text is very clear. How did he empty himself? By doing what he did. He emptied himself then of the glory, the recognition of who he was, veiled himself in human flesh. Christ chose to come to earth and veil his heavenly glory with a body of flesh. The word form is again used, morphe, which means the essence of something. He was God in essence, and he became man in essence. Fully God, fully man. He became a bondservant, doulos. It's the word for slave, taking the form of a bondservant. Now, if you want to know where is the example of us denying ourselves for the sake of others, here it is right here. God in essence became in essence, man, but he became a slave. What did he come to do? Not only to serve his father, but to serve us by going to the cross in our stead, paying a debt he did not owe. When we owed a debt, we could not pay. Verse seven says, and being made in the likeness of men. The phrase being made is aorist middle. I love that. At a specific point in time, he became flesh. Middle voice of his own choice. The father didn't beat him and make him go. He made his own choice to come. At a certain period of time, Christ, who has always been God of his own will, was made in the likeness of man. The term was made is the word genome, to come into existence on earth. He was already in existence in heaven, and he came into existence on earth, visible existence on earth as a man. Christ came out of heaven and came into existence on earth as a man. Jesus Christ, having preexisted as God, came to exist on earth as the God man. Now, he's like us. He said, in the likeness of men. You have to be very careful with that word likeness. There is one distinct difference in Christ than any of us will ever know. You know what it is? There was nothing in his body of flesh that could in any way respond to sin that is different from you and me. There's nothing in him. You take a magnet and put it over a toolbox and everything in that toolbox that responds to that magnet will respond. But if you've got something in that toolbox that doesn't have anything in it that can respond, it just lays there. When the devil puts his wand of temptation over you and me, our flesh wants to respond so fast and we struggle with it every day of our life. But when he put his temptation over Lord Jesus Christ, there was nothing in Christ that could respond to him. The only time I've ever gotten upset and stopped preaching went to meddling was when the film came out, The Last Temptation of Jesus, if you'll remember that many years ago. That's the only time I've ever gotten on a soapbox about anything, because we preach Christ. But when you tell me that Jesus Christ could have sinned, that does something to my spirit. And I had to go out, stood on a flatbed truck out there, and tried to tell people he had a body like ours, but not exactly like ours. The God man. Nail it down in your theology. Nothing in him could respond to temptation. Remember, when it says likeness, it doesn't mean exactly like. So from his preexistent glorious state to his state of humiliation, he veiled himself with a body of flesh and became a servant. Why? So that you and I could be forgiven of our sin and so that you and I might have a relationship with God the Father. Jesus set the pattern of denying oneself all of his rights, even his recognition for the sake of others. Thirdly, the place he left, his preexistent state, the passion, I mean the, the pattern he set, and thirdly, the passion he displayed. Look at verse eight. And being found as an appearance as a man, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ, the essence of God, the essence of man, the God-man is now found on earth in the shape, the fashion of man. He says, and being found in appearance as a man. Remember the word schema. It means the shape or the, the appearance of something. The, the morphe, the form, means the essence of something. He knew what he had come to do. He had come to die. He had to have a body to die. That's what Hebrews talks about. A body thou hast given me to do thy will, O God. What was his will? To die upon a cross. God cannot die, but, but man can. Flesh can. God now had taken the shape of man. Now we must understand something here. Christ did not enter a human body. He became flesh. And that's a huge difference. The Gnostic heresies of what were going on in the, in the New Testament days said, that, oh, no, 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 no. God would have never taken a body because a body is sinful. They didn't understand that it was a body that had no consequence of sin in it. And so, therefore, they came up with the idea that Jesus entered this man's body at baptism and he departed right before the cross. That was one of the theories that went around during that time. But you have to understand, he didn't enter a body. He became flesh. He became the God-man. Philippians 2 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His purpose was clear. Now, again, he came to die for our sin. He came to choose to deny himself. He, he made that choice himself. And he humbled himself. You know what the word humble himself means? Tapino. It means to get down as flat, to stoop down. He stooped down. I want you to think about the next time you have to do something that your flesh does not want you to do. And actually, under grace, you don't really have to do, but you have a choice now motivated by Christ in you to do. I want you to think about what Christ did for you. He stooped down. Look how far he had to stoop to come down to where we are so that he might die for our sin. How did he humble himself? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. It's amazing how Paul moves quickly by his earthly ministry, by all of his miracles, by everything he did on this earth, and right to what he came for, to die on a cross, becoming obedient to the point of death. The word obedient, ipokuo. He subjected himself as man to his father. He was the God-man, but he subjected himself as the God-man to his father. That's why he said in John, I can do nothing except, my father, except of my father. He depended upon his father. That was a choice that he made. Don't ever think that he couldn't have done anything. He's still God, but he had chosen not to do anything. He had chosen to walk in that submissive relationship to his father. Always God, fully the essence of God, but fully the essence of man. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Eris middle again. At a specific time, he died on the cross. Middle voice of his own choosing. It was a love choice to do what he did. And if you'll do some further study on this, you'll discover that he didn't, no man took his life as God, he dismissed his own human spirit on the cross and raised himself from the dead because he is the resurrection and the life. <laughs> it's incredible salvation that we have. Paul brings out that it was not just that he died, but that he died on a cross. That he died on a cross. The cross was a place of shame. It's where the scum would be put to death. So he chose a garbage heap to come and die for you and me so that we might have an eternal relationship with God the Father. So we see the place that he left, the pattern that he set, the passion that he displayed, but I want you to show you the position he now holds as the God-man. This is an incredible thing. As a result, God the Father highly exalted him as the God-man. 
There's a man in heaven today. Did you know that? You see, when God left heaven, he knew there was no turning back. He is not only in the essence of God and the essence of man, but in the shape of man. There's a man at the right hand of the Father. And he's the Lord Jesus Christ, our representative, our older brother. He's there. We are found in him. All of that of humanity that was lost in the garden has been given to him, not us, but we're in him. And he is our representative there with the Father. There's a man in heaven today. Philippians 2, 9, therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now you've got to understand something here. Implicit in the meaning of this verse is his resurrection. For God to do this, he had to have been raised from the dead. That is something you've got to understand. That's what we're celebrating today is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we meet on Sundays because that's the resurrection day. We, we live in the power of his resurrection, hopefully, as we submit to him daily. He resurrected. This should have been a no surprise to anyone. Even the Old Testament speaks of the fact of his resurrection. The Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, 25 through 31 speaks of the fact that David died and was buried. So evidently the psalmist must have been talking of Christ when he said in Psalm 16, 8 through 11, that the Holy One will not undergo decay. Do you realize that again speaks of the kind of body he had that could not decay? He got older but didn't corrupt. We're getting older, we're corrupting because of sin. No doubt it was Old Testament passages such as this that even Paul used. In Acts 17 too, Paul preaching in the synagogue said, and according to Paul's custom, he, he went to them and for three Sabbath reasoned with them from the scriptures. What was he doing? Explaining and giving evidence, and they didn't have the New Testament, they had the Old Testament, that the Christ who had had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Jesus himself predicted his own resurrection from the dead. John 2, 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was three days and the three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. John 10, 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Now watch this, his, his life. I have authority to lay it down, here we go. I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my father. He said, I'll meet you in three days. Only man ever who said he was gonna go to the cross and die and then make an appointment three days later and keep it. How do we know he kept it? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised the third day according to scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, the, the, the Simon Peter, and to the 12. Who else did he appear to, Brother Wayne? Verse six. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After he resurrected, he walked and he talked with some of them. Luke 24, there were two walking to Emmaus. He walked in beside them and said, hey guys, what's going on? He walked with them and then taught them. Luke 20, 24, verse 14 and following. He ate with others. In John 21, 1, when he prepared the breakfast on the side of the seashore for the for disciples, he even stayed long enough on earth to teach them about his kingdom in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1. So for God the Father to highly exalt him and give him a name above every name, he had to have resurrected. He not only died, but he resurrected. So Paul tells us in Philippians, the Father highly exalted him. The word is eper, above, and ipso, to elevate. Put a name, it's above every name. It's like what he says in Ephesians when he says, he seated him in a place far above 
all rule and authority. By the way, devil, are you listening? Far above all things and sub, uh, uh, all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You can't even come up with a name he's not above. God the Father highly exalted him. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And he says in verse 10, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, listen folks, every person that you know that breathes is one day gonna confess that Jesus is Lord, but to many of them it's gonna be too late. Oh, they'll know, they'll know. They may be in hell knowing it, but they're gonna confess it one day. They may spit in his face now. The greatest example of someone denying himself for the sake of others is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. To the Corinthians in chapter eight, I know you know who you are and whose you are. Push it aside for the sake of your weaker brother. I did it. I've chosen not to have my privileges as an apostle, Paul says, because of the Christ who gave me the example and gives me the ability in and through my life. Let me put it right down where it meets the road. This morning, when I went out to come to church, it was about time to get here. I'm usually pushing it. And I walked out, started my car, and looked around, and a dog or an animal or something got in my garbage can. And there was garbage everywhere, the worst kind of garbage, the old goosey stuff. <laughs> I'm in my suit, got my tie on. Thought went through my mind. If you go on and leave and act like you didn't see it, somebody else around here will have to clean it up. And you got a great reason. Then I thought of my wife who's trying to get everything ready for the family coming over today to celebrate the Resurrection Sunday. Then I thought of little Chris and his wife downstairs and little children that they're trying to get ready. And I'm thinking, no. And then I thought of my message and I had it holding in my hand. And God said, you too good to pick it up? And I thought to myself, no. I'm not too good. Picking up that old garbage, putting it in a sack, I thought of our Lord who stooped down, denying himself for the sake of others. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 